The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Today we're going to be a little bit different than our normal traditional episodes. We're down here at the Mississippi Trauma Symposium in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I'm going to be interviewing a couple of random people that have come by the booth, some friends of ours uh, from all different aspects of trauma and critical care, who are going to sit down and kind of talk to us a little bit about what it's like, how it is in the streets, and some things that are important to them and upcoming in medicine, both EMS-wise and in hospital. First this morning, we're going to be joined by John Gardner, who's the executive director for the Mississippi Trauma Foundation, good friend of all of ours, and is kind of helping run the show down here with his wonderful crew, Victoria and Matt and everybody else. So we're honored to have him this morning. So John, can you tell us a little bit about the conference and why we're here today and all this great stuff you have going on? So, Will, thank you for having me today, and thanks Air Care for all that you do for the state of Mississippi. My name is John Gardner. I'm the executive director of the Mississippi Trauma Care System Foundation, and we're here today to talk to you about our third annual Mississippi Statewide Trauma Symposium. It's been a great event thus far. We're about halfway through at the time of this recording, and uh, we have prefaced uh, today with uh, four different tracks of education including registry for our state trauma data recording, our uh, uh, cadaver labs, which have been uh, supported by AirCare and their team in training uh, the staff and the team around the state in providing care uh, to our patients. We also have uh, had some specialty events, uh, advanced life support and advanced burn classes have been offered uh, to certify our people to those levels of advanced care We've also had uh, some specialty classes, such as the STORC program for uh, helping with uh, that special class of people, our mothers and their babies, uh, in traumatic events. And so uh, we've just been delighted with our turnout so far. It's the biggest uh, symposium that we've had. We're here at the Golden Nugget in Biloxi this year, uh, and we move those around the state. Uh, Coming up uh, in the next two days, we'll have a blitzing of one-hour presentations for both the hospital and the pre-hospital providers of care across the state. Uh, we have an expert panel of speakers across uh, multiple states supported by our level one trauma centers, both in and out of state, uh, as well as our pediatric uh, care centers. And we're just delighted to have the group that we have this year. Uh, the Mississippi Trauma Care System Foundation was created as a management and education support uh, arm for the State Department of Health and it's made possible by uh, grants that are available through the legislature of Mississippi. And uh, we have uh, had a a stellar year of providing education and uh, it's been a a level of quality that has been unsurpassed. We've introduced a couple of new educational opportunities that have not been possible uh, until this year to prepare our surgeons, especially in our smaller hospitals, uh, to provide care for trauma patients. We're also working with uh, Uh, making provision for our EMS responders uh, to have tactical training because uh, in our world today, all too often our first responders are in uh, in tactical uh, uh, situations that we want to prepare them for. And so uh, we're very proud of uh, the work that we've done, the team that we have. And if you would like more information about uh, involvement with the Mississippi Trauma Care System Foundation and education, uh, you can reach out to me, John Gardner, and my email is pretty specific. It's jgardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, at mhanet.org. A little bit tricky, so I'll repeat that for you. It's jgardner at mhanet.org. Or you might just want to tell, telephone me at 601 368 3325. One thing I'd not mentioned is our program for Stop the Bleed. We have a, a grant through the State Department of Health to provide Stop the Bleed training to our lay law enforcement and first responders across the state, which is a life-saving uh, uh, 
it's a great training. Pro- great program. Yeah, Definitely yeah, great yeah. Program. It's, it's the life-saving uh, program. The most uh, uh, common cause of death after traumatic injury is bleeding, and so we're putting tourniquets and uh, and gauze and training in the hands of our law enforcement first responders, so that they will be able to provide the care and have the tools that they need uh, should they need them. So. Uh, that also is a possibility. So we uh, look forward to working with you and uh, our ever-expanding role and the need is uh, always there. And I just want to thank uh, AirCare and the folks uh, that have made this possible and be able to get reach out to you folks today in Mississippi. I appreciate your time, John. Thank, thank you for honestly having us. This has been a blast for us. It's always fun to uh, get to come and see everybody and spread a little word on education at the same time. And we just have a, we just have a blast talking about trauma. Well, you guys do a great job, and uh, we're lucky to have uh, have the skill that we have. I, I mentioned in the opening of the symposium this morning is that uh, uh, we had a, an opening invocation prayer, and you know, just being thankful for life because we are so aware that, that many people that that had life yesterday don't have it today. But but more importantly, many people have it today because of the care provided by our trained professionals uh, in both the pre-hospital setting and the hospital setting for our trauma patients. Or I think we're going to truly start cutting those mortality and morbidity numbers eventually. I, re- I really do. The, the way we're pushing it with the state on a state level through the foundation and everything else, really trying to curve that, curve those numbers back in the right direction. Yep, And I think we're already seeing some of those the results as well. So uh, we're uh, very, very excited about the, the care we're providing for people across the state. We're very fortunate in Mississippi to have this type of program with the funding that is available uh, and made possible. And the buy-in, the buy-in from not only the community, but uh, our, our trauma centers across the state. And uh, many people don't realize that uh, every hospital is not the same level of trauma center. And so, you know, part of our process is looking at transferring and getting the right patient to the right place the first time. And uh, so we appreciate uh, all the, the work that our level four trauma centers do, as well as our level three and two and one trauma centers. And I'd mentioned that the care is not the thing that changes. The care is exemplary in all of these levels. It's just the amount of services that they provide, the surgery that they can have, or the level of coverage, whether it be orthopedics or neurology or things like that. But but the care is excellent at all levels of our trauma system. And uh, we're actually giving an award later today to uh, exemplify how well the trauma system works uh, and it's going to involve uh, a lot of different uh, components. It's going to involve the pre-hospital uh, first responders, uh, the initial hospital, the transfer teams that get them to the level one trauma centers and actually save lives. And we know that happens. So, you know, for all that, uh, we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, the symposium, when you all first started putting it on and then watching it evolve, selfishly for me, it's been really, really fun to watch. But it's awesome for these people that are in these smaller centers that are all across the state in every little corner and they get to come to something like this where they have opportunities to talk to that trauma surgeon that they're going to be receiving at the end of the day at that level one trauma center you can talk to dr kutcher or dr zaza whoever it may be and be like hey what can i do better and everybody here is always pushing it like like you said they're all caring about the care and how do they get themselves better and they they really want to do the right thing for their patient the first time so how, what they do initially at that level four center really can dictate not only outcomes, but dictate what happens at that level one center and make a difference in somebody's day. Absolutely. That, and that's the key. Uh, you know, as I look at our speaker list, our theme this year was disparities in trauma care. And, uh, you know, we look at different populations. Obviously, there are all types of disparities. You know, uh, proximity, there's Mississippi's a rural state. And so how do we respond differently when we know transfer times are longer to make sure that we're providing the, the care that that patient needs? Uh, it could be a child. Uh, you know, many of these areas, uh, fortunately for us, uh, do not see uh, a lot of children. You know, I've had uh, uh, ambulance services say they may manage eight, uh, eight children a year. And so we get them skilled and prepared. And we know one of the classes this year was around how to uh, intubate a child. And uh, they just don't get a lot of uh, opportunities to do that. And they get hands-on experience in practicing for that. And, you know, in these smaller communities, uh, you know, the child that may come in is going to be a child that likely could be uh, the child of, of one of the employees at the uh, ambulance service or the family or the, uh, the, the hospital itself. 
um, and, uh, you know, or at least someone that you know. And so those can be very devastating to a community. And uh, so uh, we would like to really look at different types of disparities. We know that our inner cities uh, have a different crime level. And, uh, you know, Dr. Williams is here from uh, USA and Mobile, has a great program, Project Inspire, that is showing how they're making a difference in the lives of children and first offenders of nonviolent crimes uh, in the inner city. And uh, so uh, we're looking at all types of disparities. And, uh, and you know, there, there are uh, goal here is to navigate them. You know, some of them we can address, some of them we just have to navigate around. So uh, that's the purpose of this. Uh, it's fascinating for me to watch the, the thirst for knowledge that people have. Uh, every class that we have uh, is just well attended and the people come out saying this is just fabulous training and uh, it really speaks a lot for uh, the level of commitment that uh, people across our care system are providing especially for a focus group such as the trauma patients so you know we think about that in terms that uh, uh, trauma patients are different and so you have to think differently than the uh, than the next patient that comes into your er and be able to adapt to that so it's really a team effort uh, we try to focus on building our teams between our leaders, our physicians, and our uh, physician extenders, uh, all the way back to the nursing care and back to the pre-hospital care. So uh, it's a great program, and it's growing, and uh, it's providing the care and the quality that Mississippians expect. Great. Appreciate it, John. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, hopefully the rest of the day goes pretty good. I think it's going to. There's a whole lot of people here, for sure. It's going well. Thanks to you guys. Appreciate it, John. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined by the Mike Cole. That's, that's how I was told, uh, Kevin told me, make sure I introduce you, the Mike Cole. Currently director, is that right? I am director of Covington County Hospital Ambulance Service. Well, Mike, glad to have you on. Glad we got to see you, got to get you to be here. So talk a little bit about... Uh, rural EMS in Mississippi and some of the challenges and some of the things we deal with as far as ambulance services. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me today and I'll encourage you not to do anything that Kevin King asked you to do. <laughs> we'll all be a lot safer <laughs> if we would uh, do that. Uh, I'm just joking. Kevin is a lovely individual. So uh, I'll start by telling you the good things about rural EMS in uh, Mississippi. First of all, it's not as busy. And especially when you're a more tenured uh, pre-hospital care provider, you enjoy that. Uh, you're able to create more of a family atmosphere and culture because you have a smaller service. They work closer together. They know each other. They support each other. Uh, that Typically, the people that work in rural EMS are from that community. And so there is a big sense of commitment to that community. They feel like they have to provide ambulance services because it could be their friends and loved ones that would go without ambulance services as if they didn't. Uh, everyone at the service uh, functions and has a high level responsibility uh, because there's not enough people to go around. So e everyone is more than a spoke in the wheel. They're actually what makes the wheel go around. So you'll never be just a paramedic. You'll have a QA responsibility. You'll never be just an EMT because you'll have fleet management responsibilities. And uh, that, that is good. It, it makes everybody feel that they're contributing to the overall outcome. It gives everybody the buy-in. For me, yeah. when I was in rural EMS, it's like, all right, I, I own this. This is some of my own ownership. I can definitely say, all right, well, I'm a part of this. As you, as you said, family. Everybody in rural EMS, is, they're all family. I think you're right. That ownership and that buy-in, and that improves our service, man. It, it doesn't make it weaker because you have to do multiple jobs. It actually makes it stronger. Uh, there's a large amount of community support. You know, uh, in rural communities, the community knows the providers. The providers knew, know the community. There's an unusual amount of support there. The practitioners know the service area, and they know the local individuals, and that expedites care for them. I'll give you an example where when I first went to Covington County, there was an ambulance call for a person that was having uh, shortness of breath. And when the 
when the address come across the scene, everybody in the service responded. And I thought, oh, you know, what, what's going on here? They knew this woman to be a critical asthmatic who had been intubated several different times. And in that situation, they were right as well. You know, that lady ended up being uh, intubated because of her severe reactive disorder. And you don't get that necessarily in your larger services where they know the community that well. So research shows us that uh, the retention rate in rural EMS is better than in urban or metropolitan EMS. Uh, once you get there, typically you stay longer, and uh, that definitely is good. And then there's a lot more state supports and federal supports for rural EMS because they understand how critical it is. And th those fund that funding is... Uh, tremendous. It is paramount uh, for the rural EMS service. The, the challenges that we face, and the most critical challenge, and I think that this is all of EMS, not just rural EMS, is funding. It is the most critical construct right at the moment. It is influencing all of EMS. Um, you know, local, there is no local funding for most rural services. There's, and you can't get it. You, but to your point, community support is great. And your community knows, hey, we need to support the ambulance service. We need to support our first responders in general. They'll support you all they can, but they're also your biggest advocates when it comes to getting money from outside as well. It's easy to go to. I know there's several grant projects around the state where the community says, hey, look, I, we need this. How do I help you? And it's all about networking for a lot of those grants. It's, hey, it's knowing where they are, knowing how to get them, and get them to your clinicians to where they can make a difference. I mean, this, I bring it back to, like, the Life Pack surge a couple of years ago when everybody was getting the grant funds for how many how many ALS ambulances do you have in your county? Okay, well, I've got three. Great. You need three Life Packs, or you need three defibrillators that can actually manage patients. You don't need to have just one that you're sprinting to every which way, and that was what was happening. But those grants can make a big difference, not only in, to your point, employee retention and everybody having the equipment they need and everybody's happy, but making a big difference in patient care and patients' lives. Uh, I agree with you, Will. Um, I also want to tell you that we, we see the availability of federal funding in tax, in, uh, grant funds increasing. Uh, used to, there were none for ambulance services, and we're, we're seeing that slowly trick, trickle up a little bit, and it needs to happen because our greatest challenge is funding. Most of your local rural ambulance services are not funded locally. Um, there's just not the tax base to do it, uh, and I certainly understand that. Uh, over 80% of the funding for your rural EMS comes from uh, CMS, Medicaid, Medicare, and they have very strict rules. I liken it to um, going into Walmart and buying $100 worth of groceries, but deciding that I'll only pay $30 for it. And I just pay $30 for it, but I take away $100 worth of merchandise. That cripples Walmart. And that is the same thing that's being imposed on EMS by... CMS and also some private insurances. And so if I were talking to any legislators right now, either federal or state, I would tell them that this is the most critical issue that affects all of EMS in the future right now, and it really needs to be looked at. And it's not just a bring it back. A lot of people think, oh, it's just about money. It's about who's going to get a better paycheck and this, that, and the other. And I mean, paying EMS, let's be all honest, most first responders in general don't get paid what they should in my mind. But trying the pay goes to new tires on the ambulance so you don't have a blowout where you're driving to Jackson or to a definitive care center, making sure that the oil change happens. I mean, there's all those kinds of disparities and problems that everybody deals with, especially in a rural community, of trying to make it happen. It's the simple things that can be a big challenge, and those – ongoing day-to-day -day expenses can add up. Well, let, let me give you a statistic from my service so people will understand more about uh, the expense just toward the vehicle. 
I, I have nine ambulances in my fleet, and we provide coverage in two different counties. And we spend approximately $50,000 a year on each vehicle. That is maintenance, that's fuel, that's tires. Uh, that's, that's essentially a new car that I'm buying every year to make sure that the ambulances are functional. It, it's not cheap doing this. Uh, one of the problems, and this is a federal problem, it's not a state problem, is that Medicaid Medicare does not recognize EMS as health care. They recognize it as transport. So if I go and pick you up and I carry you to our excellent Level 1 Trauma Center in Mississippi, I'm going to get a $1,500 reimbursement from, uh, Miss, uh, from CMS. Everybody thinks that that's a lot. But if I give you $1,800 worth of medicine between your pickup point and your destination, I'm $300 in the hole. And then on top of that, you take the 30% that Medicaid says, oh, okay, well, I'm going to just pay you this regardless of what your bill is. We, we are pushing a wagon uphill trying to make ends meet in EMS. I, it's not about money. It should be about, number one, in my the position that I represent, the person that comes first is the practitioner. It is my job to take care of that man or woman. And if I'm able to pay them well and improve their quality of life so that they can only work, so that they can work one job, make men's, uh, ends meet, their life is better, they treat patients better, and they will care for the patient. The second concern should be the patient. Well, I've got to tell you this. Right now, our concern is funding, because if I don't do something about funding, I won't have employees, nor will I have be able to care for patients. And so we, we've got to take our hand out of the, head out of the sand and realize how crucial this is and become politically active about this. It, it's not to uh, suppress anybody or it's not to blame anybody. It's that if we want to continue the level of care that we have, we've got to do something about the funding. We've got a problem. Let's skip the blame game. Let's just fix the problem. Thank you. That's I mean, let's let's truly just fix what we got an issue with, which is you got to make everybody happy as far as, like you said, it, if your employees are happy, your patient cares better, and that's pre-hospital, in-hospital, anywhere, anywhere, anywhere I've ever been. If the employees are happy, their patient cares better, they care more about it, they take more pride in it. It's one of those. I'll pick on some of our guys. So we've, you know, we've got these awesome folks we work with that drive our ambulances on our critical care ground team. Those folks, man, they will they'll wax wax the trucks every day, just because they want to. They kick pride in every vehicle they have, and they check them off every day just like you're kind of supposed to do but they really pay attention to details they're like hey can we get some more detail rags we want to make sure this is this scratch is buffed out or hey do you know there's a little dent right there that stretcher hit it the other day i want to scuff that out i mean they they take such pride in i'm picking on vehicles but they take such pride in their work and where they work and they want to say yes i work for mcs or yes i work for covington county ambulance service it's true i mean I, and i think that that's applicable to every service in the state. Uh, but in order, one of the challenges that I have is employee salary. Uh, if, if, you play, if you pay someone, right now we're competing many times uh, with fast food industries. Now, there's nothing wrong with fast food industries, but that's normally your initial step into the uh, employment world, and sometimes those people may not have all the employment skills that they're going to meet, need to be as successful as they want to be and have the earning potential that they need. They'll get it, you know, a after some experience. But if I can only pay a driver $15 an hour, and trust me, it's not that I don't want to pay them more. It's all that my budget will allow. I'm going to get $15 an hour quality employee. We, we could have that person that takes pride in everything they do, polishes the truck, makes sure that they're uh, advancing the community, advancing the profession. 
but you have to pay for what you want. You, you get what you pay for. And uh, I know that that sounds critical. It's probably very harsh. But I'm trying to advocate for the men and women of EMS because we have some very altruistic providers out there. And they, they deserve that. The injured patient deserves that as well. So directly related to funding is recruitment of employees. Now, once you get an employee in, you tend to retain them in the rural setting. They like it. They stay there. But recruitment is a totally different thing, um, and it's probably related to a lack of number of people that are coming into the workforce pipeline right now. Recruitment is an issue, and it is related to funding, but it is also complicated by the reality of uh, my particular services. We've discussed employee salary at uh, nauseum. I'll, I'll leave that alone. Here's one thing that people don't realize that may be a challenge in EMS is the long transport times. We're yep. So if I pick up a patient in Covenant County Hospital and they are a trauma patient and there's no sense in them going to our level four facility if I can manage them, they need to go to UMC. And so I'm going to take them to UMC. Well, that's a 60 mile transport. And that's one person in the back of the ambulance trying to do what it takes an entire emergency room to do once the patient gets there. So it, it's good for the employee because they get to exercise every skill that they've ever learned. They get every bit of autonomy to say, yes. hey, this is my patient. This is I've got the buy-in, and it's. I'm sure you're the same way I am. I want to know when I hand off somebody, I'm like, hey, look, I've worked my tail off for – 60 minutes, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. This is this is pride in my work. Here you go. Did I hand it off to the right person? Are you going to take the same amount of pride I am? Because it, it's one of the best things about EMS to me is it allows the individual clinician to say, hey, look, I'm going to put everything I got into it and make a difference in somebody. Uh, absolutely. I love that. And that's one of the things that attracted to me as a young provider uh, to EMS. But the flip side of that is that it's a long transport. It, it's it's still 60 miles. It, 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 and uh, we, we're fortunate, as uh, David Hall mentioned in his speech this morning, we went, when he and I first came up in EMS, there was one helicopter for the entire state of Mississippi. That has mitigated a lot of our critical scene transports that we do have helicopter backup. But the problem with... Uh, Rural EMS and long transports is when that ambulance is gone out of the county, taking the patient where they need to go, who is covering the other residents of that county? And, and so there is a delicate balance between covering the county and providing for one. And so that, that is always a challenge. That's always something that's in the back of my mind. That is something that every rural provider has to make plans for what what do we do if we have a mass casualty and the ambulance is out of the county wait times were another big thing that happened secondary to covid when everybody i think that that's pretty much that's still there's some but it's a way way dramatically less than it was what, what are y'all experiencing now i don't think it, it's it's a bit i mean it's all based on acuity but it's anywhere usually the wait times High influx, one to two hours, but during COVID, I mean, they were posting supervisors for different ambulance services in the UR EMC, but, you know, we'd fly to Birmingham, they're having the same problem. We fly to Memphis, they got the same problem. You know, Memphis was dealing with anywhere from 12 to 24-hour wait times, and they're on an EMS stretcher. It's, like, what you know, and they don't have a chair in the waiting room because the waiting room's full. That's, what do you do? I have to tell you, I've been in EMS almost 40 years, and I've never seen anything like the COVID experience. There, things happen that I never imagined would happen, like the 12-hour wait times. And it, but in bringing it back to rural EMS, when you think a 12-hour wait time, and you're talking about they may have two trucks in the county that day, and one truck's gone, well, what if there's another emergent transfer sitting in another ER? 
or there's a car wreck, a bad car wreck, and it's got six patients. It's, I mean, it's already an MCI, but it's now really an MCI because I don't have the staff or I don't have the ambulances, the infrastructure to back them up. And everybody's got the mutual aid agreements and all that other stuff, but it's still a challenge. Will, have you ever been in the situation when you called mutual aid and they said, we were calling you for mutual aid? Yep. That, that has happened uh, recently yep. because of COVID. There, there's not enough trucks to go around with everybody. Um, so, you know, the long transports maintaining coverage is definitely a challenge in there. I want to tell you, um, one of the, not big things, but one of the things that requires special attention in rural EMS is upskilling and also maintaining your level of competency. So I have medics uh, that work for me. We, we have a staff of about 70. Uh, over half of those are medics. I have medics last year that had zero intubations. And you know yourself that the assurity and the confidence of intubation comes from regular practice. Now, I don't want to practice on people, but if they need to intubate me, I want to make sure that they are well experienced. It's so, uh, I tell people all the time, I'm glad you picked intubation. Intubation's an art. It's something you have to, it's no different than the art of baseball. You have to practice your craft to be the airway expert or the airway management person and be effective. I mean, even me, so I don't fly as much as I used to anymore. You know, we're in a cadaver lab last two days. That's very sad. I'm I, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear you say that. Oh. I, still, I still fly. Don't get me wrong. But it's not near as much in this new role I'm in. But for me, I had a cadaver lab last two days that my team's putting on. I take advantage of it. I'm, I'm Full disclosure, I take advantage of it. I intubated everyone that was in there. Because I don't, I mean, you know, it used to be, for us, it was two or three times a week I was intubating somebody. When on my week on, but how do you, how to your point, how do you maintain competency or how do you get competency back for somebody that hasn't got an opportunity to pay? I mean, you know, it's luck of the draw. Did I get this call this day? Did I get this arrest or did I get the opportunity or is there a paramedic student with me? And Hey, they need the opportunity. Yes. I need the opportunity too, but they need the opportunity as well. They're learning. I, I'm at least can give them some pointers and make sure everything there and they have a backup and they have that safety net. You, you describe the dyna dynamic very um, completely. Uh, you're exactly right. Um, you don't have all those opportunities in rural EMS. And so we, we have to find alternative ways to meet that competency, such as cadaver labs. And uh, we appreciate this, the Trauma Foundation, for what they're doing here. Uh, because that is one of the reasons we need it is in rural EMS to ensure that the medic can intubate, that the medic can decompress, that the, you know, all of the different they're, skills. They're familiar with everything. And to your point with funding, I mean, cadavers are not cheap. That's, that's a process. That's not something, now here at the symposium, they offer it almost essentially free. I mean, for what it should cost somebody to do it, they've been really great about it. But uh, it's such a challenge for clinicians to, get that competency back and you you know fred the head we'll pick on you know everybody's got fred the head laying around every ambulance service has got one somewhere they may call him hal or fred or whatever but intubating fred the head and then you go to the adult peds and neo ones is not the same as a human tissue it's all it's different i mean it's just different yeah uh, and it particularly you know you mentioned pediatrics that that is definitely got to be one of the biggest challenges in rural ems thank goodness um, last year, I think we had 10 pediatric patients. Only two of them were critical. That's awesome. That's great. Until you realize that. That's two exposures. That's you have. correct. And so the next time that you have a bus accident and they have four peds in there, the medics may not have the competency level that they want. Or the nurses in the ER may not because we're not used to dealing with that. Thank goodness. I'm glad we're not. I want to. You mentioned funding and I am remiss that I mentioned something about wait times so uh, CMS uh, and your rural insurances because rural insurances excuse me <laughs> private insurances because they recognize uh, ambulance services largely as just transport instead of care do you know how much I got paid to have an ambulance wait at a hospital for 12 hours during COVID to transport for a patient over 
I'm not a big budget guy, but the red numbers are bad, right? They are bad. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. So I made, uh, just, we'll say, an average of $1,000 a call, whether I had an employee wait with the patient for 12 hours or whether they waited with them for 15 minutes. It is horrible. There, there, there was no concessions made for the length of time that paramedics were ha- and EMTs were having to dedicate their time to care for these patients. Now, we had to care for the patients, and we would never not care for them once they were in our service. But that also put a huge financial strain, especially on every service, whether they were rural, metropolitan, urban. Uh, rural EMS has less resources, and I want to say that it was probably more problematic uh, for the rural services. And we saw it trickle to us a lot. I mean, there's, you know, I remember when we first started COVID, we weren't flying anything because nobody knew what was going to be on an aircraft and everything went on at quarantine stuff. But once it picked up and you started seeing those really long wait times, really long transport times, and where am I going to get a bed? How is this going to work out? We were flying a lot and stuff that the acuity level wasn't there for us, but it was to that point of, you're out of resources. Well, I got a resource. I know I can call these people. They at least got something, and it's better than nothing. You know, the, one of the other things that we have is we have air care, and these guys are very supportive to us. They come to local facilities and provide things like stork training, which has been awesome, uh, scene training, flight training, uh, intubation. They, they are a great support to our rural communities, and we appreciate that. Um, thank you guys. Oh yeah, of course. Well, Mike, appreciate you having, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you uh, taking some time. Uh, Will, thank you for having me here. Thank you for the podcast. I enjoy it. I I listen to it frequently. Um, good luck to you and thank you for all that y'all do for us. Appreciate it. All right. All right, guys. Now I'm joined here by Todd, who just happens to be the newly promoted manager of coming to kind of EMS. Uh, Mike had nothing to do with you sitting down, not not whatsoever. Absolutely not. In his usual persuasive way. So, something Mike want to kind of talk about? You're in a new management role. You liking it? Uh, yes, sir. It's been been quite interesting. Mike's not standing here. I'm just throwing it out there. It's it's been very interesting. <laughs> it's a challenge. Uh, been through that in my career as well transition over it's something different but the cool thing about it is you get an opportunity now to not only be a paramedic and a clinician but also step up and say all right well how do i help other clinicians better themselves how do i make them better practitioners how do i support my team and make it the best it all can be for at the end of the day patient care right that's exactly right so for you clinically do you feel like your clinical skills have dropped in the last you know, since you took this job, or do you feel like you're still got it and ain't nothing wrong? Um, you know, the little uh, IV skills, I'd say, is something that's dropped off just a little bit, but I try to stay on top of it. You know, the benefit of working for a hospital-based EMS, I get to kind of play in the ER, so. I'm with you. I'm with you. They, they'll they get on to me on Friday afternoon. I'll just, hey, man, I got to go pick something up from the hospital real quick, and I'll just come back two hours earlier. Like, what have you been doing? Playing in the ER. That's the best part of it, man. Oh, yeah. You get to hang out, play. And then it. you also, the other side of the hospital EMS, it's pretty cool. And you get to understand your practitioners. You've got providers in the ER, the ER nurses, the techs, everybody. One of the things Mike was talking about was how great, and I came from early EMS, so how great early EMS is and a family that hospital base is the same way, too. And it, even when I worked for a private ambulance service that covered multiple counties, I could walk into every ER and I knew most everybody by name. Um, could probably tell you how many kids they had and how long they've been doing this and usually what their favorite 3 a.m. snack was and what they would get me to run the gas station to get. Um, Sour Patch Kids or Hostess Products or that Mountain Dew that everybody's got to have. It's definitely um, been a challenge, I would say, you know, from the clinical aspect of it, you know, working at 911 truck to move into that manager role. It's hard not to hop on the truck to go out when you need to be, you know, doing payroll. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're sitting in the office, you're like pacing, you're like, all right, what's that radio traffic? What's that radio traffic? All right, they're going to get off scene. Yeah, how bad is it? What's going on? Do y'all sprint at Covington County at all? We do. We do. 
Um, so that gives you a little bit. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. But, I, you know, I have to, have to use that. I hear a good call. It's kind of it's one of those things that I want to go sprint out there to go to it, see what's going on, see if I can help out. Uh, you know, but sometimes there's a meeting, things like that. Uh, Somebody yeah. else has to go. So You got to get on that WebEx. Yeah, yeah. Teams meeting. Yeah. It's, it's painful. So let's let's step back in that clinician role. I know you're a manager, but clinically, what do you want to see rural EMS or what do you want to see paramedicine work towards as far as what we get to see in Mississippi? What do you think would help you out? Um, you know, I, I believe us having a more expanded scope. I believe, you know, the utilization of community paramedics is going to be the thing of the future. Um, you know, lower these readmission rates, you know, telemedicine. You know, that's, that's a big thing coming up, or is a big thing now. Now we have these rural communities don't have services that, you know, we don't have OB, you know. So if we have somebody that can go out there, do a consult with them, they can talk to a provider without even having to leave their home for that matter, that, that that's going to be a game changer. You use, uh, do that kind of virtual thing. So you do the telemed stuff, but you have a community paramedic that can, hey, I can talk to the specialist. I can be your hands. They have that advanced level of training so they understand the assessment and saying, all right, because, I mean, I know they have the new fantasy scopes that are Bluetooth that you can put to your phone and call somebody. But, uh, you know, this is wheezing. This is Ronca. This is, you know, like you can still get those good assessment findings and triage amount and this, that, and the other. I think the reimbursement rate is going to be a challenge with that for us currently, but I think we can get past it. And like you said, you can bring care to that person and you can make it a little bit more applicable to the patient. I mean, that you're in college, you got an appointment, you know, you got some specialist in Jackson or some specialist in Hattiesburg even. I mean, that's somebody that's disabled or doesn't have a whole lot of resources. That's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And there's an opportunity there for community paramedics, especially in the rural setting where y'all are, to really make a difference there. Uh, absolutely. And not only that, instead of having to tie up a ground, ground ambulance on a transport, we can bring these doctor visits, these people's homes. So that, that, that's... Well, and so many people use the ER as primary care now. That's it, right. It frees up that ER bed. We're worried about, you know, ER referral or ER staffing, everything else. Again, my only fear, a little bit of it selfishly, is are you going to take some of those really, really good paramedics that are experienced and put them in that role, and it's going to be great for that role, but you still got to backfill the street, and there's that ongoing education stuff, which is a big challenge for us. I mean, it's a challenge for an EMS. You know, me and Mike are talking about how it's symposiums like this and everything make it where you have the opportunity to do cadaver labs or have that extra training or stuff besides Fred the Head where you just, you know, sit there and intubate them 15 times. But getting that exposure level to younger clinicians and build them up. Are there anything that you find helpful as far as growing young clinicians and growing growing new providers on the team and say, hey, this is how I did this or this, that, and other. Are there, are there tools or facets y'all have found that work well? Uh, a lot of patience. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, you know, always, you know, tell my guys if they have a training opportunity they can go to, you know, do it. But, you know, don't be scared. Get in there. Get your hands dirty. Yeah, get down with it. That's yeah. Right. Um, and that's one of the big things, you know, Talking about Mike earlier, yeah. you know, that's one of, the, one of the things he brought into Covenant County for us. He has pretty much, you know, uh, changed our EMS department way of thinking and all that. So now, you know, we're really education centered now. So we, every time we have the opportunity, we're bringing, trying to bring in somebody to teach something or um, attend some type of event. I mean, we, we brought store to y'all for an entire day. Y'all were the first true EMS bunch. We, I mean, we, there were several ER staff members, but it was mostly everybody off the ambulance service. Yes, sir. And, I, and I, I'm telling you, they had nothing but positive feedback, and they're, uh, they're wanting more. So that's what Amy hit me up. She's like, uh, So when can we get a store class again in Collins? I was like, Well, hang on. Coming out the new schedule, got the new grant. We're, we're coming, I promise. I'm, I, ain't, I ain't forgot about you. But hey, if you want to go to something else in the meantime, by all means, I get it. Say. And, you know, just off that store class, we had other facilities uh, around us that's now. You know, we won't want that, man. We yeah. want that class. So, Well, and it's how do you build things that are applicable that people like. I mean, selfishly for Stork, when we built it, it was, all right, what do people not get? 
they don't get a whole lot of OB training. Everybody skips that chapter for say paramedicine school, and they they're like, I don't want to do that. It's yucky, whatever. But you really have the opportunity. I mean, this is a big passion of mine. But you really have the opportunity if you treat mom right, that baby's gonna be okay, and you can really make a difference in a lot of these places that don't have OB services. I mean, it's a it's a thing. We really don't have it in Mississippi in general. Um, it's very hard to get it. Uh, get a good OB service established. So bringing it in there is not just like a flip in the switch. But to your point, community paramedicine is a great opportunity. And then getting everybody that recurrent training or the initial training of, hey, this is the exposure. This is what it really is. This is what the textbook says. This is how it really happens. And then bringing those high fidelity simulators we're fortunate enough to have, let everybody get their hands dirty. I, I totally agree with you. You know, when you talk about the community paramedic, you know, also with that telemedicine, you know, Coming to County, we don't have OB. So if we do something, it has to go through telemedicine. So that's, it's going to be interesting in the future for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Todd, appreciate your time, man. Thanks for sitting down with me for, for, for a minute. You weren't, you weren't, you know, Mike didn't talk to me too bad. No. So. I appreciate the opportunity. Man. Yeah, man. I just want everybody to know we're here with Benji Sessoms, the Benji Sessoms out of JCJC Community College, or excuse me, Jones County Junior College. You just got your PhD. By the way, congrats. I haven't actually told you that yet, but congrats. I know it's a thing. It is a thing. I agree. It, it is a thing. It is a thing. But anyway, came down. I, I pulled you in to sit down. Tell me about this uh, MCAMP stuff. Tell, tell us a little bit about this awesome opportunity y'all have developed for Mississippi. Well, First, thank you for letting me uh, talk to you about it. So, and thank you. PhD is a thing. Yeah, it is a thing, and it's a done thing. Um, MCAMP stands for the Mississippi Center for Advancement of Pre-Hospital Medicine. So it's a it's a long name, but it looks really good on the website. Um, and you can go to that website. It's it's up. It's mscapm.com. Um, and so about two years ago, a group of leaders in the state involved in EMS really started getting together and trying to brainstorm on how could we get funding, how could we go out for grants, how could we try to try to organize some financial resources that could be directly put back into the Mississippi uh, EMS workers and our workforce. Um, a lot of this came right out of that, that major workforce crisis we had around COVID. And so um, these group of leaders, uh, kind of led by Mark Gatelli, uh, put together, and it, it involves uh, Mark Gatelli, uh, Dr. Mike Cole from Covington County, myself, um, uh, Representative Stacy Wilkerson is on the board, Clyde DeChamp is on the board, and we have several physicians that play a major role in kind of helping lead this. And so we went through all the process. We it is a, It's a 401C. It's a nonprofit organization here in Mississippi, and its primary purpose was to, um, was to try to do things that would help bring in more workforce that would educate and that would be able to support our current EMS providers. And so since its foundation, we have, uh, we've done a lot of things. We've received funding from several organizations in the state, like the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance. Uh, we've received funding from other organizations and we've been able to put that money directly back into EMS in the state. Um, currently we have uh, six high school EMT programs that are running which is awesome. It is. Um, That's awesome. I, I, I've been part of uh, one of the pilot programs at Covington County High School at their Votech. We uh, are about to graduate the first class. In fact, we check them off on Monday, and they'll be taking registry. These are students who took the EMT course um, for the entire year. So they were taught uh, an EMT section every day for the entire year. These students had to be already have already completed either the uh, law and public safety course or they had already p completed the um, healthcare course at their VOTEC, and so these are seniors. And we've got several programs going on in the state. Um, I know up in Cahoma, they're doing a workforce EMT class with their high school students, and we just got a lot of great things happening. And the idea was that we would be able to introduce high school students to the EMS profession right out of the gate. And even if those students didn't stay long-term, they would go home and talk to their mom and their dad and their brother and their uncle. And we were hoping to 
make an impact with getting uh, just EMS recognition out there. It, it spreads the words, gives everybody a little more exposure than they may normally have had to, hey, it's not just a fast ride. It's Absolutely. not something with some signs I'm supposed to pull the right for. Absolutely. Uh, pull to the right, not the left. Just throwing it out there. Absolutely. But and not associated with any any specific ambulance service, not associated with any you know specific organization, very non-political based. It was just directly try to get these students. And what the nonprofit organization was able to do um, is we paid 100% of their tuition, their books, their tuition, their national registry costs. These are students who got high school credit for taking EMT. Many of these students are getting dual credit with the local colleges taking EMT. The local colleges are kind of, it's being done under the, uh, the state regulation, so it's being done through the EMT programs in our colleges and our districts. But we were able to pay 100%, so these students were able to get into the profession without having a cost. Um, the foundation is also has funding outside of the high school program. We're helping fund EMT programs. We just received um, some really good news that we're going to be able to help start funding some advanced EMT courses in the state. And so those are, those are things that we're able to put directly back into EMS to help bring in our workforce. Most exciting part going on with the foundation is we all understand that we are in a healthcare crisis when it comes to mental health and mental well-being. Um, the foundation has been working very hard to get grant funding that will allow us to provide mental health resources, mental health um, courses and seminars to our EMS workers to try to make our current workforce stronger. And so we're, we're working really hard to be able to provide these resources. It's a great foundation. Um, I'm, I'm really excited you say something about mental health. Put in a quick plug, we're actually recording an episode in a couple of weeks um, with two of our clinicians off our team and, and me, but we're talking about PTSD Absolutely. specifically and the challenges that it comes with EMS or pre-hospital, in-hospital, ED, everywhere in healthcare. But now, especially, it's more relevant. But bringing that to the forefront, but hey, it's not something dark. Everybody here is really bad about putting stuff in a box. Absolutely. And um, trying to get that away from that stigma and bring it to the health and forefront and say, hey, look, this is this is something we need to address. Yeah, and you know, we 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 have resources out there, but so many times in the EMS specifically. Uh, EMS workers find it difficult to get to those resources to open up about the, the struggles they've had. We have a tendency to think, well, the stress and the and all of the stuff that we see in EMS is just part of the job. Well, it comes with the job, but I don't think we should ever look at the, the trauma and the mental pressure. And we realize that EMS workers have the same life that everybody else has, and so they have financial struggles, marital struggles, addiction with substances, and so finding ways to provide resources that are easy to access financially uh, financially feasible that's, that's yeah man that, that's the struggle and part of it is is there's a lot of us in ems we get to see the other side we take care of the patients that are dealing with addiction or dealing with uh, psych trouble or mental health issues and we know what those facilities cost we know what they are a lot of when we transfer several of the inpatient ones on a regular basis as a as an ems collective right. and so we're like well i don't want to be in that ambulance i don't want to be that side of the stretcher and it's it's a challenge but as you said a lot of people have no idea all the resources that are out there and available i don't i don't want to totally talk about all of them because we're supposed to talk about no, in a weeks but absolutely. i mean but like there are resources it's okay it to not be okay and so one of the things that uh the ems camp organization the nonprofit is trying to do is we want to we want to help fund that we want to get those grants that are out there so we can develop plans work with um, individuals like dr. Jackson up at Mississippi Hospital and his group and be able to provide free financially affordable resources to our EMS workers because we believe that that that's keeping our uh, workforce well-being uh, safe is the key to us advancing our profession and so it's taking care of the people that take care of you that's it and so uh look i i thank you for letting me spend just a few minutes i am very passionate about ems you know i've been i've been an ems instructor for over 15 years and i have seen such a change in the type of uh employee and the type of student that we're seeing come in and i'm passionate i believe ems is at a great time in our uh, future i think right now we are seeing EMS advancing into so many different areas of healthcare and public health. And I think it's a great profession. We've come so far in the last 15 and 20 years 
and I believe we're just right here at the peak of it. And um, I want to I want to see the public see EMS for what it's doing, and I want us to see ourselves as part of the healthcare solution. And um, I just I just want to thank you for letting me talk just a few minutes about it. Yeah, appreciate it, Benji. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, man. All right, thank you. All right, well. We just had the Casey Jones sit down with us, one of our emergency nurse pracs who uh, works at Alacky in Waynesboro these days. We get to see her a lot from the air care side of the street. Um, I used to work with you a pretty good bit when I flew nights because you're pretty much a night shifter. Yep, I'm a night person. Night person. So let's talk a little bit about working in a rural ER and some of the, I don't know, some of the challenges, but some of the stuff you see just, especially with trauma patients and exsanguinating. I mean, I'll pick on Lackey, but... I mean, you're an hour from UMC by ground, 20 minutes by air, but it's still a challenge a lot of the time. So what are some of the stuff you see or some of the things you face? We see a pretty good amount of gunshots. Um, we're close to I-20, so a lot of severe NVCs, other, you know, just random trauma. We actually stay pretty busy, um, see a fair amount of trauma patients, a lot more than you would think for a rural ER. Well, and you throw the ag stuff in there as well, right. and just the random, you know, I got crushed by a tractor day, or, you know, yeah. just small things. Some of the challenges I know from a trauma standpoint is resources, and the y'all are awesome. Um, truly caring for somebody, trying to push the envelope, how do I make it better, how do I get the care better, but you still only have so much. Um, one of the big things, and there's several people here talking about today, but blood. Right, that How is much a blood big limitation that we have. We only have um, one unit of O-neg, occasionally two, but here lately it's been one. So that's, you know, we're told to request blood when we call air care, but if we have a trauma patient, in my opinion, that's something that y'all usually just bring because you know we need it. Yeah. Um, we, don't, we don't have any. Well, we got all the, way, all the time on the aircraft anyway. Right. Um, do y'all carry plasma or have FFP available? We do not. So, and that's something... It used to, honestly, pre-COVID, everybody had a little more better access to FFP, but it takes 30 minutes to thaw FFP. So that's a, hey, how do I think about that? So when you have somebody roll in that's exanguinated, they got a gunshot wound in the chest and one in the belly, you know, because they're never one, um, and they're, you're dealing with them, you're like, all right, when do you know to pull that trigger? How do you, in your thought process mind, or how do you think of, all right, when's the right time to pull it? Is it just based off patient assessment? Which basically, you look at? is there any obvious bleeding? Um, of course, you can get a quick chest X-ray, pelvic X-ray to try to find where the bullet is and further assess the situation. But I'm pretty quick to pull the trigger because we we do only have one unit and we are still a significant distance away from UMC. There's going to be a lack of resources between here and there. There's only so much you can bring. Only so much blood you can bring with you. So I'm pretty quick to pull the trigger on that and TXA. Pretty much all trauma patients just kind of have the attitude to throw some TXA on it. Are you all doing the two-gram bolus as well? I have been. I can't speak for everybody else, but um, I think it was me and you had the conversation. Actually, I had a gunshot maybe to the upper abdomen chest wall, and um, you said that you all had switched the two-gram. So from then on, I started doing the same saves that line you don't have to worry about the infusion just push it be done with it and call it a day right and that's also important because we don't have you know just a ton of nurses especially on the night shift it's quicker to push a two gram bolus than hang something wait for it to finish that's going to take up an IV that I need for something else well and y'all deal with MCIs on a pre-regular basis and I, when I say MCI you know it's a mass cow but you're beyond your scope of resources you have two patients that are sick and lackey that's a big deal because Let's talk a little bit about some of the staffing. So everybody wears multiple hats. Y'all all work as a team, but yes. you are the provider, you're the nurse, you're the tech, you're the administrative assistant. You go get copies. You are bagging somebody. You may, you know, using fingers and toes, just trying to do every little thing, pharmacist, what have you. Is that a, one, I think it brings a good family atmosphere just to work yeah. in general. But how do, you, how do you train somebody to do that when they're coming in? That's a great question that I don't have the answer to. Um, I have worked in a lot bigger hospitals and where I've had all the things, and then I've also worked rural ER as a RN where I didn't have the things. That was a 
harder transition for me, um, going from all the things, all the resources to not having any. But it definitely helped me bridge to the nurse practitioner role because I already knew what it was like and already knew the expectation. But I also have the attitude of if you are going to work in rural ER, you need to know how to do all the things. You need to know how to do everybody's job to make sure that the patient gets the care that they need. Well, and it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily have to do their job, but you know what they need. Right. So, like so if I'm by myself or something happens to my coworker or somebody doesn't come in for their shift, I'm able to function independently. Yeah. Um, well, and it's just like simple things like knowing where the peep valves are or how do, where do I do this or how do I get this hookup or, all right, well, do you have a bladder scanner? We don't, but we do have a, you have a pretty nice sonicide ultrasound. W- so. Wonderful ultrasound. But like... All right, how do I get the probes? Making sure it's charged. All right, where do I find more ultrasound gel? I want to run out. Like, that kind of stuff. It's it's super simple, and it may seem intuitive in a way, but some of those bigger centers, that's, well, I've got somebody that does that. Right. I actually was in a situation at Wayne General recently where we were planning to intubate the patient. I went in. I prepared all of my, you know, supplies by myself, and respiratory walked in and just stared at me like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I like to do everything myself. And he just kind of acted like I was crazy because he didn't have to come in and prepare anything. And it was already done by the time he arrived. Um, so I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, you know, work in smaller hospitals. I just, this is how I operate. Um, so that was pretty interesting. He was like, where do you work? And I said, at Lackey. But it, it allows everybody to constantly push themselves and you all push each other really, really well. I mean, you all all are great group come most every conference I'm at anyway and it's like all right well how do we push each other to learn not only to better ourselves but better the system do like you said do do better for your patients right um actually we're very fortunate our administration is so supportive of you know multiple nurses taking away from staffing and coming here this week and uh they're always you know we don't have to argue for time off to do educational things they're very supportive of that it's pretty interesting because I've been in the ER for a while, and when I started as a new RN at a bigger hospital in the ER, trauma symposium was not like something that was ever pushed to us or encouraged. It was like, well, we have these classes here. Here's what's required. The envelope was never pushed as far as learning education. Um, I kind of have the attitude of you're responsible for your own education. You're going to be as good at your job as you want to be. So you can take it or leave it you can do extra or you can do the bare minimum but doing the bare minimum is not going to make you a better nurse provider it's well, not and it, and it, it can correlate and then end up in patient care so it's like one of those at the end of the day it could be you know my family member your family member or what have you but you got to prepare yourself and work at it and it's I was talking to Mike Cole earlier and we're talking about you know the art he's talking about competency and recurring competency with paramedics and you have to worry about the art of intubation. It's an art. It's something you have to practice regularly. And that's with anything. If you, you don't do it every day, you kind of got to lose it. You got to get yourself back in there. For me, I go to the ER and hang out for a minute. If I don't get on the aircraft enough. I'm sure it didn't take very long. No, it, it didn't. But you still got to work at it. I mean, I try to read something every day. Um, try to push the envelope. And it's something that you can do in, in rural EMS or in rural hospitals you don't always have the resources and the classes and there's not a, you know there's not an ACLS class every day but can you find something online can you find a resource where you can push yourself or push your team be like hey I read this what do y'all think about it yeah so actually I have been talking to one of our new nurses Miranda I'm always encouraging her to read this podcast or read this article or this is what I do Um, because she's very eager to learn. So that's fun for me, because I'm like, hey, look at this. Um, I keep a running list on my phone of educational topics that I'm going to look into next, just so that I can stay um, up to date on everything. Because one challenge of rural ER is that you don't see everything all the time. You may have a patient with a dissection, and you haven't had one in a year. Lucky for me, I've had three in the past month. So, But that's just an example um, of education and I try to keep everybody be encouraging I guess you could say well you got to get exposure like we're you know there's an episode coming out here in the next couple weeks for us with thyroids like nobody really wants to study endocrine it's not everybody's favorite subject now some people out there must love it totally love endocrine but 
thing about a thyroid storm, it's not something everybody sees every day. Even at level one center, that's something every six months that you get a true legit one. So, but you have to push yourself to be prepared and be exposed to those kinds of things. So how do you find exposure? And again, trying to challenge each other, challenge yourself, read something every day, and then kind of come collective. Some of the best conversations I've ever had clinically were for us at Shift Change. Like, hey, we did this, this is the call, or this is the transporter, this is the patient we had that came in in the ER, and this is how we dealt with it. What do you guys think? It's that kind of storytelling stuff that Shift Change. Now, sometimes you're just trying to bolt out there, I get it. But you can have those great conversations, and clinically it can be make a big difference. And what I enjoy is when, you know, I've been off for a few days and I come back and the nurses have been there, I wasn't there, and they, oh, well, let me tell you what came in this week, you know, and um, it'll be a trauma or, you know, just anything really. I always try to learn from that, too, because how, how it was handled, what do we do for them here, um, that, that's always interesting. And something else I want to bring up is the logistics of working in small towns. So, like, how many ambulances do you have? What backups do you have? Y'all have an ambulance service that's local, but they have other backups. But knowing that, hey, if I send somebody out on this transfer, what do I have to back me up? Right. There may be one truck left in the county, and then, oh, something terrible happens. And um, EMS is a resource for us. So in the event of MCI or something terrible, that's a resource. And if we send them away, and we're taking away even more of the help that we do have. Well, and it's it's – spatial awareness or conscious awareness of hey this is kind of what i got with me because you never know what's going to happen yep well appreciate you sitting down today thanks for having me thanks for your time this has been a presentation of blue crew medicine